Section 45, Introduction. The month of March 1831 brought a rather shocking surprise to Joseph Smith and his associates. It is known to us as Section 45. The Lord was well aware of the series of ferocious events which would be literally poured down on the church in the next few months. No doubt it was the Savior's purpose to help the saints see beyond the trials that lay ahead and stay focused on the magnificent upcoming events that are described in this section. It is here that the Lord discloses for the first time the elaborate fabric of the prophetic events that will transpire before the second coming. It will be recalled that quite frequently in the recent revelations of the past, the Lord has been emphasizing a need for the members of the church to be continually prepared for these prophetic events, including the second coming, because they might come sooner than many expected. But of course, the Lord is thinking in terms of God's time, where a day with God is as a thousand years with mankind, as mentioned in Second Peter 3 and 8 and Abraham 3 and 4. The Lord wants the saints to realize that this is a very important revelation. A little later, when the Lord sets up his school of the prophets, as described in section 88, this present section 45 will become the challenging text for many hours of study and discussion. Now we will see why. Here is the text of section 45. Hearken, O ye people of my church, to whom the kingdom has been given. Hearken ye, and give ear to him who laid the foundation of the earth who made the heavens and all the hosts thereof, and by whom all things were made which live and move and have a being. The Lord addresses this revelation to the whole church, and he reminds the saints that the church is being directed by the Father's general manager of this whole round of creation, even Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. And again I say, Hearken unto my voice, lest death shall overtake you, in an hour when ye think not, the summer shall be past, and the harvest ended, and your souls not saved. There is a human tendency to postpone repentance, and Jesus reminds the members of the church that they must not only get forgiveness of their sins in this life, but maintain that forgiveness continually. We never know when our mission in this life will be terminated, and it is easy to get caught unawares by death when we are not prepared. This is why we partake of the sacrament so often, to renew our covenants and retain a forgiveness of sins from week to week. As King Benjamin said, Always retain a remission of your sins, and ye shall grow in a knowledge of the glory of him that created you, unquote. And that's in Mosiah 4 and 12. Now in the next three verses, Jesus describes how the atonement works. He quotes the Lord as saying, Listen to him who is the advocate with the Father, who is pleading your cause before him, saying, Father, Behold the sufferings and death of him who did no sin, in whom thou wast well pleased. Behold the blood of thy Son which was shed, the blood of him whom thou gavest, that thyself might be glorified. Wherefore, Father, spare these, my brethren, that believe on my name, that they may come unto me and have everlasting life.
Notice that Jesus never mentions the fact that the saints had repented and were trying to do their best to keep the commandments. All the repentance does is to qualify the saints for the Savior's intercession in their behalf. When it comes to the atonement itself, the entire focus is on the Savior's suffering. The Book of Mormon goes on to say that Jesus did not pay for our sins with his suffering because it would be unjust for one person to pay for the sins of another. This can be found in Alma 34, verses 11 and 12. The Book of Mormon goes on to say that the atonement could not be based on justice, that is, so much suffering for so much sin, but it had to be based on some other principle that was infinite and everlasting. That principle turned out to be mercy, not justice, but mercy. The Book of Mormon says the suffering of Jesus was, quote, to bring about the bowels of mercy which overpowereth justice, unquote. And that's in Alma 34 and 15. In pursuing our study of the atonement, we discovered that the suffering of Jesus had to be so intense that it aroused the feelings of compassion or mercy in every intelligence in our round of creation. That's what made it infinite or universal. Therefore, whenever Jesus intercedes for anyone who has repented, that person's sins are forgiven for the Savior's sake. Alma summarizes the operation of the atonement by saying, quote, And now the plan of mercy could not be brought about, except the suffering of the atonement should be made. Therefore God himself atoneth for the sins of the world to bring about the plan of mercy, to appease the demands of justice, that God might be a perfect, just God and a merciful God also. Unquote. That's found in Alma chapter 42, verse 15. We cannot help but ask, how much did Jesus suffer in order to reach all of the intelligences in our universe and thereby make his sacrifice infinite and universal in its application? Only the prophet Enoch has left a description of how much Jesus suffered on the cross. He says, quote, And the Lord said unto Enoch, Look, and he looked and beheld the Son of Man lifted up on the cross after the manner of men. And he heard a loud voice, and the heavens were veiled, and all the creations of God mourned, and the earth groaned, and the rocks were rent. Unquote. That's from Moses chapter 7, verses 54 to 55. None of us could even imagine how excruciating the suffering of Jesus must have been. Hearken, O ye people of my church, and ye elders, listen together. And hear my voice while it is called today, and harden not your hearts. As Joseph gathered the saints for their conference, the Savior knew that beginning very shortly, the members of the church would be tested to the limit. Jesus therefore called upon the saints to carefully listen to what was about to be revealed to them. Jesus knew that some of these doctrines would be entirely new to them, and contrary to what they had previously been taught in their former churches. He therefore urged them to receive the marvelous revelations in this section joyfully, and not harden their hearts against them. For verily I say unto you that I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. 
the light and the life of the world, a light that shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. The Lord gave a special endorsement to this revelation because it is coming directly from the Savior himself, even the Alpha and Omega of the Father, the very Son of God. I came unto mine own, and mine own received me not. But unto as many as received me gave I power to do many miracles, and to become the sons of God. And even unto them that believed on my name gave I power to obtain eternal life. When Jesus came in the meridian of time, he knew the Jews would not recognize him because they were expecting him to overthrow the Romans and set up his kingdom that would last forever. This prophecy is in Daniel 2 and 44. But as the Book of Mormon says in Jacob 4 and 14, the Jews had missed the mark and thought this would happen in their day, whereas Daniel had said it would not happen until the latter days. This is found in Daniel 2 and 28. So when Jesus didn't fulfill the expectation of the Jews by overthrowing the Romans and by making the Jews the rulers of the world, they thought he must be an imposter. That is why Jesus would say that when he came into his own, they, quote, received me not, unquote. Even so I have sent mine everlasting covenant into the world to be a light to the world, to be a standard for my people, and for the Gentiles to seek to it, and to be a messenger before my face to prepare the way before me. In the latter part of this verse, the Savior was thinking of the great conference that would take place early in June. He emphasizes that those who accept the gospel and the teachings of the saints can become the children of God and obtain eternal life. Wherefore, come ye unto it, and with him that cometh I will reason as with men in days of old, and I will show unto you my strong reasoning. The Lord wanted to reason with the saints so they could better understand how he had dealt with those who accepted the gospel in the past. Take Enoch, for example. Joseph Smith learned a great deal about Enoch while he was revising the Old Testament. He tells us the following about the city of Enoch that was so righteous it was translated. Here is what he says, quote, Now the doctrine of translation is a power which belongs to this priesthood. There are many things which belong to the powers of the priesthood and the keys thereof, that have been kept hid from before the foundation of the world. They are hid from the wise and the prudent to be revealed in the last times. Many have supposed that the doctrine of translation was a doctrine whereby men were taken immediately into the presence of God and unto an eternal fullness, but this is a mistaken idea. Their place of habitation is that of the terrestrial order and a place prepared for such characters whom he held in reserve to be ministering angels unto many planets, and as yet have not entered into so great a fullness as those who are resurrected from the dead. Unquote. This is taken from the teachings of Joseph Smith, page 170. Wherefore, hearken ye together, and let me show unto you even my wisdom, the wisdom of him whom ye say is the God of Enoch and his brethren, who were separated from the earth 
and were received unto myself, a city reserved until a day of righteousness shall come, a day which was sought for by all holy men, and they found it not because of wickedness and abominations. So Joseph Smith learned that Enoch and his entire people were taken off the earth to another planet, where they will remain until the millennial day. Many of God's most righteous servants pleaded with the Lord to let them be caught up to join Enoch, but the Lord did not grant their wish. Their calling was to fulfill their tedious missions on earth like strangers and pilgrims, enduring their role in the midst of wickedness and abominations. And confessed they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth, but obtained a promise that they should find it and see it in their flesh. But at least they received a promise from the Lord that some day they would enjoy the beautiful environment of Enoch's people, even if it had to occur after the resurrection. Wherefore, hearken, and I will reason with you, and I will speak unto you and prophesy as unto men in days of old. The Lord now promises to share with the saints the same prophecies that he shared with his servants in the past. And I will show it plainly, as I showed it unto my disciples as I stood before them in the flesh, and spake unto them, saying, As ye have asked of me concerning the signs of my coming, in the day when I shall come in my glory in the clouds of heaven, to fulfill the promises that I have made unto your fathers. He proposes to share with them the same prophecies he related to his apostles while he was ministering in the flesh. But the Lord wishes to discuss a subject he knows they have on their minds. He says they have looked upon the time between death and the resurrection as a sort of bondage. However, the Lord promises to show them the day of their redemption, which will be glorious. For as ye have looked upon the long absence of your spirits from your bodies to be a bondage, I will show unto you how the day of redemption shall come, and also the restoration of the scattered Israel. And now ye behold this temple which is in Jerusalem, which ye call the house of God, and your enemies say that this house shall never fall. The Lord then switched over to talk about the beautiful temple of Herod located in Jerusalem. He told his Jewish apostles what would happen to it. But verily I say unto you, that desolation shall come upon this generation as a thief in the night, and this people shall be destroyed and scattered among all nations. In this verse he described its total destruction and said the Jews would be scattered all over the earth. And this temple which ye now see shall be thrown down, that there shall not be left one stone upon another. He said the destruction of the temple would be so complete that there would not be one stone left upon another. When I visited Jerusalem the first time and saw the wreckage of those stones, some of them weighing thousands of tons, I couldn't imagine how they could be so completely demolished. And it shall come to pass that this generation of Jews shall not pass away until every desolation which I have told you concerning them shall come to pass. Jesus knew in 33 A.D. that by 70 A.D. the Romans would put down an uprising among the Jews and completely demolish Jerusalem, 
Over a million Jews would be slaughtered, and the survivors would be crucified, burned alive, or torn to pieces by wild animals as entertainment in the Roman arenas. Any who escaped this terrible fate would be scattered abroad all over the empire. The Romans told the Jews that if they attempted to return and build up Jerusalem, it would carry the death penalty. Ye say that ye know that the end of the world cometh. Ye say also that ye know that the heavens and the earth shall pass away. And in this ye say truly, for so it is. But these things which I have told you shall not pass away until all shall be fulfilled. Then Jesus made a prediction concerning the Jews in modern times. And this I have told you concerning Jerusalem. And when that day shall come, shall a remnant be scattered among all nations, but they shall be gathered again, but they shall remain until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So the Jews will remain in a scattered state until the days of the Gentiles are at their height. And in that day shall be heard of wars and rumors of wars, and the whole earth shall be in commotion, and men's hearts shall fail them. And they shall say that Christ delayeth his coming until the end of the earth, and the love of men shall wax cold, and iniquity shall abound. These conditions will exist right up to the time when God undertakes to restore the gospel culture once again. And when the times of the Gentiles is come in, a light shall break forth among them that sit in darkness, and it shall be the fullness of my gospel. But they receive it not, for they perceive not the light, and they turn their hearts from me because of the precepts of men. The Gentiles will prohibit prayer and reading the Bible in the schools. They will prevent the exhibiting of the Ten Commandments in the schools or displaying them in the public parks. They will legalize the abortion of over a million babies per year. They will teach children that they evolved from lower animals. They will deny the intervention of God at any time in human history. They will deny the Great Flood as a myth. These are some of the satanical precepts of men Jesus was talking about. And in that generation shall the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. But when the cup of God's wrath is finally overflowing, the time of the Gentiles will be considered at an end. And there shall be men standing in that generation that shall not pass until they shall see an overflowing scourge, for a desolating sickness shall cover the land. A terrible scourge will destroy a major segment of the various nations, and science will be baffled in its attempt to control it. Hence the appeal to heaven. A description of this terrible plague is set forth in Doctrine and Covenants section 29, verses 18 to 19. The Lord says, quote, Wherefore I, the Lord, will send forth flies upon the face of the earth, which shall take hold of the inhabitants thereof, and shall eat their flesh, and cause maggots to come in upon them, and their tongues shall be stayed, and they shall not utter against me, and their flesh shall fall from off their bones, and their eyes from their sockets. But in those days those who have faithfully lived the gospel will get their reward. The Lord says, 
but my disciples shall stand in holy places and shall not be moved. But among the wicked men shall lift up their voices and curse God and die. And there shall be earthquakes also in divers places and many desolations. Yet men will harden their hearts against me, and they will take up the sword one against another, and they will kill one another. At this point, the Lord's disciples were greatly disturbed to hear these prophecies. And now, when I, the Lord, had spoken these words unto my disciples, they were troubled. And I said unto them, Be not troubled, for when all these things shall come to pass, ye may know that the promises which have been made unto you shall be fulfilled. The comfort of the Savior was that when you see all of this happening, you will know that God's promises of a great restoration will take place. It will be like a great parable that is about to be fulfilled. And when the light shall begin to break forth, it shall be with them like unto a parable which I will show you. Ye look and behold the fig trees, and ye see them with your eyes. And ye say, when they begin to shoot forth, and their leaves are yet tender, that summer is now nigh at hand. Even so it shall be in that day, when they shall see all these things. Then shall they know that the hour is nigh, and it shall come to pass, that he that feareth me shall be looking forth for the great day of the Lord to come, even for the signs of the coming of the Son of Man. These are the signs that God's hour is nigh, and the Savior's appearance to the Jews is about to occur after Armageddon. Now the Lord itemizes the signs that have always been listed by the prophets as preceding the second coming of Christ. And they shall see signs and wonders, for they shall be shown forth in the heavens above and in the earth beneath, and they shall behold blood and fire, and vapors of smoke. And before the day of the Lord shall come, the sun shall be darkened, and the moon be turned into blood, and the stars fall from heaven. But what about the remnants of God's righteous? And the remnant shall be gathered unto this place. They will be building the new Jerusalem. This is what is meant by being, quote, gathered to this place, unquote and looking forward to the glorious second coming. And then they shall look for me, and behold, I will come. And they shall see me in the clouds of heaven, clothed with power and great glory, with all the holy angels. And he that watches not for me shall be cut off. However, before the cleansing of the earth and the second coming, the first resurrection will commence, and the Savior will rescue the Jews. But before the arm of the Lord shall fall, an angel shall sound his trump, and the saints that have slept shall come forth to meet me in the cloud. Wherefore, if ye have slept in peace, blessed are you, for as you now behold me and know that I am, even so shall ye come unto me, and your soul shall live, and your redemption shall be perfected, and the saints shall come forth from the four quarters of the earth, so the first resurrection will be in process just before the appearance of Christ to the Jews. Then shall the arm of the Lord fall upon the nations. 
This may have reference to the destruction of the international armies of Gog and Magog after the three-and-a-half-year siege of Jerusalem, which is often referred to as Armageddon. Jesus intervenes at the height of this siege, and after the dictator of the Gentiles named Gog has slain the two prophets. These are the two prophets who were able to call down fire from heaven and hold back the armies of Gog through three and a half years of siege. And then shall the Lord set his foot upon this mount, and it shall cleave in twain, and the earth shall tremble and reel to and fro, and the heavens also shall shake. Jesus says he will resurrect the two prophets and have them join him as he descends on the Mount of Olives. At that moment the mount will cleave in two. One whole segment will move to the north, while the remainder will move to the south. Only half of the population of Jerusalem will have survived, and they will see an opportunity to escape through the opening between these two segments of the mount. Meanwhile, fire will be destroying the armies of Gog and relieve the Jews from any further peril. The Jews will gather around Jesus in joyous relief. It would seem that Jesus will not appear in glory as at the second coming, but he will come as he did to the Nephites when he appeared as an ordinary man dressed in a white robe. By withholding his glory, the Jews will excitedly gather around him in joyous approbation. They will say he is their long-awaited Messiah, but have no idea that he is Jesus Christ until someone asks, quote, What are these wounds in thy hands and thy feet? Unquote. And he will say, They are the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Then he will say, quote, I am Jesus Christ. Unquote. The Jews will be astounded. All of these events are set forth with sources cited in the first edition of the 4,000 years, pages 614 to 616. It is later that Jesus makes his appearance to all the world in what we call the second coming. However, many things must occur between the Savior's appearance to the Jews and the glorious second coming. Jesus will speak so that all the world can hear him. This is what he did for the Nephites after the great destruction in America. This is described in 3 Nephi chapters 9 and 10. And the Lord shall utter his voice, and all the ends of the earth shall hear it, and the nations of the earth shall mourn, and they that have laughed shall see their folly. Then events transpire which we have already presented. And calamity shall cover the mocker, and the scorner shall be consumed. And they that have watched for iniquity shall be hewn down and cast into the fire. And then shall the Jews look upon me and say, What are these wounds in thine hands and in thy feet? Then shall they know that I am the Lord. For I will say unto them, these wounds are the wounds with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. I am he who was lifted up. I am Jesus that was crucified. I am the Son of God. And then shall they weep because of their iniquities. Then shall they lament because they persecuted their king. Beginning with this verse, the Lord skips down to the second coming 
and to the events which will lead up to the opening of the millennium. And then shall the heathen nations be redeemed, and they that knew no law shall have part in the first resurrection, and it shall be tolerable for them. And Satan shall be bound, that he shall have no place in the hearts of the children of men. Beginning with this verse, the Savior interprets the parable of the ten virgins. They represent the members of the church or kingdom of God. To get the full implications of this parable, we have to read it in Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 to 12. The shocking aspect of the parable is that while nominally all of the foolish virgins feel they are members of the church, the fact is that Jesus will say, quote, I know you not, unquote. This tells us that only half of the members of the church will be acceptable to the Lord when he comes, even though the other half do have their names on the records of the church. And at that day, when I shall come in my glory, shall the parable be fulfilled which I spake concerning the ten virgins. For they that are wise and have received the truth and have taken the Holy Spirit for their guide and have not been deceived, verily I say unto you, they shall not be hewn down and cast into the fire, but shall abide the day. We need to clarify this verse a little. All of those who are cast into outer darkness to pay for their own sins to the uttermost farthing, are redeemed when they have suffered enough. But the only ones that are not redeemed are the sons of perdition. This is Doctrine and Covenants 76, verses 35 to 38. These are, quote, hewn down, unquote, which means that they lose their spirit bodies. And it will also be the same with Satan and his angels, and the resurrected bodies of the sons of perdition who have betrayed God while in the flesh. Father Lehi told Laman and Lemuel that if they continue to try to murder Nephi and to pursue their course of evil, they would suffer the second death and lose both body and soul. After all, they had seen angels and heard the voice of God and he was afraid they qualified as sons of perdition if they continued in their sins. He said they would be, quote, hewn down, unquote, and cast back into outer darkness as naked intelligences and never have a second chance. This is in Doctrine and Covenants 29 and 29 and 3 Nephi 27 and 17. Now notice what will happen to the righteous and the earth shall be given unto them for an inheritance, and they shall multiply and wax strong, and their children shall grow up without sin unto salvation. For the Lord shall be in their midst, and his glory shall be upon them, and he will be their king and their lawgiver. At this point the Lord said this is as much as he wishes to reveal at this time. And now, behold, I say unto you, it shall not be given unto you to know any further concerning this chapter, until the New Testament be translated, and in it all these things shall be made known. Wherefore I give unto you that ye may now translate it, that ye may be prepared for the things to come. The Lord makes it clear that the translation or revising of the scriptures is vital to building up the faith of the saints and preparing them for what lies ahead. For verily I say unto you, 
that great things await you. The Lord emphasizes why this revelation, which is loaded with gospel meat, was given at this particular time. The Lord also knows how low the spirits of Joseph and Emma are following the death of their twins. And so he has given them this revelation to cheer them up with aroused anticipation because of the great things which await them. Ye hear of wars in foreign lands, but behold, I say unto you, they are nigh even at your doors. And not many years hence ye shall hear of wars in your own lands. Of course there are great trials coming as well. One of them is the worst war in the history of the United States. Wherefore I, the Lord, have said, Gather ye out from the eastern lands, assemble ye yourselves together, ye elders of my church. Go ye forth into the western countries, call upon the inhabitants to repent, and inasmuch as they do repent, build up churches unto me. This great war will devastate the eastern lands. That is why the Lord is so anxious to get the saints out into the western lands. He also wants the missionaries to earnestly preach the gospel in the western lands so the people will have a refuge when the war is raging, mostly in the east. And with one heart and with one mind, gather up your riches that ye may purchase an inheritance which shall hereafter be appointed unto you, the Lord says it is most important that the saints buy up the land in the region where the saints will be gathering. This, of course, will be the region for the saints' refuge. It will be called the New Jerusalem. As we will discover later, the Lord already knows the saints will lose this refuge and have to go into the Rocky Mountains. Nevertheless, he also knows that at a future time, they will gather the members of the church to this place where the Savior will minister among them. And it shall be called the New Jerusalem, a land of peace, a city of refuge, a place of safety for the saints of the Most High God. The Lord refers to the time when the region of the New Jerusalem will become the salvation of the saints, even though it is far in the future. And the glory of the Lord shall be there, and the terror of the Lord also shall be there, insomuch that the wicked will not come unto it, and it shall be called Zion. And it shall come to pass among the wicked that every man that will not take his sword against his neighbor must needs flee unto Zion for safety. The Lord has his vision fixed on that important future date when the members of the church will have another chance to redeem Zion. And there shall be gathered unto it out of every nation under heaven and it shall be the only people that shall not be at war one with another. The Lord is anticipating a future crisis when the whole world will be engulfed in war. And it shall be said among the wicked, Let us not go up to battle against Zion, for the inhabitants of Zion are terrible, wherefore we cannot stand. Nevertheless, the various militant factions will not dare attack Zion, this is a supremely important prophecy. This verse will be a reassuring comfort when it comes to pass. And it shall come to pass that the righteous shall be gathered out from among all nations and shall come to Zion singing with songs of everlasting joy. As the world crisis mentioned in these verses begins to sweep across the world, 
The saints will be grateful that God has gathered them into the security of this hallowed territory. And now I say unto you, Keep these things from going abroad unto the world until it is expedient in me, that ye may accomplish this work in the eyes of the people and in the eyes of your enemies, that they may not know your works until ye have accomplished the thing which I have commanded you. Here is a wise instruction from the Lord that was badly violated. The saints just couldn't keep these sacred secrets to themselves. Some irreverently boasted of the Lord's promises to them and paid for it with the sacrifice of both lives and property. When we get to section 101, we will discover what else the saints did to lose their first inheritance in Missouri. That when they shall know it, that they may consider these things. The Lord projects his vision from the present to the future when the ultimate Zion will be precious in the sight of God and the wicked will reap the overflowing wrath of God. For when the Lord shall appear, he shall be terrible unto them and fear may seize upon them and they shall stand afar off and tremble. And all nations shall be afraid because of the terror of the Lord and the power of his might. Even so, amen. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to read more on the Prophet Joseph Smith, look for W. Cleon Skousen's book titled Brother Joseph at skousenlibrary.com.